And welcome back to another episode of the Magnus and Marcus podcast on coaching. I'm Steve Magnus, the coach of the University of Houston and author of, we'll go with the forthcoming book, Peak Performance. Joined by my partner in crime, John Marcus, coach of High Performance West. John, we're back again. We're showing up. We, I made a promise. I said I'm going to show up and hold Steve accountable. Show up week in and week out, no matter how many cross country flights he's on, getting his Cougars of University of Houston national qualifying marks. So, uh, I I will give you full credit because if uh, if you didn't show up, I probably never would. That's so, true. That's that's, little, that's why it's a symbiotic relationship that works. <laughs> little, little behind the scenes info for you listeners out there. Um, John's the one who keeps us on target here with this podcast, and we are all thankful for that. So, speaking of difficult things to do, we're talking about the marathon this week, right? So, we've had a couple requests from um, listeners to ask, hey, you guys talk about the track all the time. How about talk about, you know, transitioning to the marathon and what the marathon entails, so that's what we're going to cover. So thanks, guys, for the input. Um, you know, why don't we start here? What were some of the big misconceptions of the marathon that you had when man, you were starting out in coaching, which you don't have now? I think the number one misconception I had was... It's an extension of track and field pattern of training, just longer and harder, so to speak, in terms of all you do is you just turn up the volume of miles ran, and you also just turn up the volume of workouts that you, um, you know, run every week, and then, and then decreasing say the paces and the second thing is thinking that you have to do a lot of race pace specific work at marathon pace those two things while they seem um, intoxicating and simple and correct in my opinion and in my experience are vitally wrong (laughs) because it's (laughs) In a lot of ways, to me, it's very, um, what do I want to say? It's seductive to think it's just that simple. And it really is not because the marathon is a very tricky, difficult distance to prepare for, for a variety of reasons. And then on top of it, you have to get ready to compete against other people and the distance. So, you know, those those two things were paramount. And then the third was I grossly underestimated how quickly things can go south, how quickly fatigue can build up in an athlete. And in a matter of steps, essentially the light switch goes off. Essentially the, the fuel tank goes to empty. And you can't predict it no matter how well you prepare, how well your fluid management is, how well your calorie, goo intake, whatever it is. It's, you know, it's almost like shooting darts in the dark from my experience. What about you, Steve? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, very similar in a lot of respects. What I would say, maybe a couple to add to it or maybe expand on it is, <clears throat> is that you had to hit some certain number of big long runs or some certain number of big, like, marathon-specific tempo runs or whatever in order to get there on race day. And... I think the the more I coach in the marathon and the marathoners is the wider variability I see of what works for people. And, you know, the examples I, I like to give is I've seen, I've seen Neely Spence do maybe 12 to 13 miles total at marathon pace. And that's about as far as she goes in training. And I've seen other athletes who go 18 miles, 19 miles at that pace and effort or faster and can do so in training. And I think there, I think the variation of what's needed for the marathon is so much greater than on the track for 10 K 5 K 1500, whatever have you. And I think that, I think the simple reason is if you look at all the track events and I'm talking from, you know, 1500 up is the demands are all very, very similar. Like, yeah, they're a little bit different, right? I mean, the 1500, sure, a little more anaerobic, whatever. But it's very, very similar. Like, you just tweak things a little bit here and there, and you can run a good 15 or you can run a good 10K. But if you look at the marathon, the demands, it's almost like a different sport in a lot of ways. Because it's no longer training for like this, this one big limiter and then a couple other small limiters that might pop up on race day. It's like you have 10, 15 different like limiting factors for the marathon and you don't know what one's going to show up on race day. Right. So you might, you might nail the fuel and all that and they're perfect, but their legs or muscles might cramp and give out. Right. And it's just, there's so many different iterations of that, that it's, it's just tough to, it's not like you can train for every single one and check them all off. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not a bunch of physiological boxes to, or buckets to pay attention to, because even if you've done all that work and you've done it meticulously and you prepared deliberately and you've had no hiccups or anything, you get there on race day and there's still so much that can go wrong over the course of, you know, two to three hours of being on your feet, you know, pressing at like sub-maximal intensity for that duration that you just can't plan for. Like, so, do you get a blister? Do you, you know, all of a sudden like have some type of um, intestinal issues? Do you get a – grab the wrong water bottle that has a fluid – concentration that really doesn't agree with you i mean is it crazy humid is it you know insanely wet those are all things you can't control and yet you have to be in that for two or three hours <laughs> exactly you know i i actually sarah hall's first marathon ever was the perfect example of this right so her training was spot on like i'm talking like didn't have a single bad workout during the you know three-month build or however long it was. Not a single bad workout. Everything went well. Like her, her other races went well. Everything was spot on. 
And then Marathon Day, it was like a disaster. I can't, I, I think she ran like 240 something. I don't even remember, right? It was just disaster. The only thing that happened was it was in LA and it was humid. And it was just horrible. Three weeks later, she came back and was the top American and I think 20th at World Cross. So the fitness was there. But I remember being so shocked because literally like Sarah, Ryan and I had just sat there and been like, this is not in the bag, but like this has been the best buildup I've ever had with anybody. And Ryan sitting there saying like, this is spot on. Like this buildup has been incredible. And, you know, here you go. You have a America's fastest marathoner telling you that too. And you're like, all right, like we're good. Like I know stuff can happen, but maybe instead of 228, she runs 232, whatever, you know. But then to see it all go down the tube in a couple miles in, in LA while I'm driving around was just a very, it, it was a very big lesson to me to realize that while we control a, a good deal, the marathon is like the king. It controls, oh, without it controls yeah. everything. I mean, you look at the women's Olympic trials last year. Um, the order of um, placement at half marathon, you know, number one through five, was not the order of finish. You would not have bet. No one would have predicted that Shalane Flanagan would have suffered severe dehydration and cramps and have to basically, you know, um, gimp in to third place. You know, no one would have, everyone would have been very uh, hesitant to say Desi running her pace, running her race would have made that team. And that, and that shows you, you know, one of the things it's like, I think we've, we said this before, you know, those, those top four women last year were the same top four, the previous four, um, previous four years with Kara Goucher, Amy Hastings, Shalane and Desi. And that experiential knowledge, that awareness, that knowing they've been there many, many times before and their depth of respect for the marathon and the level of preparation, and yet knowing all that does not mean anything, that they just got to the starting line, you know, relatively healthy and relatively prepared, does not guarantee them the, the spot. And I think that is the difference between like an amateur and a professional mindset is understanding that the distance, the task is the main thing to con- conquer. And you hear like Heidi Gebelstrasse talk about it. You hear other greats saying like, you know, you're racing the distance. You're not racing the people. And it's, you know, the reason why sometimes too, the way the race plays out, like say when Samuel Angerno in 2008, Beijing just went crazy fast from the gun and just put the whole world on notice that no one thought he was going to do it. It was a suicide mission. And it was. It was either going to work out brilliantly, which it did, or it was going to fail miserably. There was no – but he made a decision to say, at least I'm going to give give it a go and do it this way, and we'll see what happens. Um, but you see that all the time, right? How often has the world record holder in that event won the, the race at a major championship, at an Olympic or at a um, world championship in recent – modern times very rarely right right yeah yet the world record holder more often than not in the track events will win that track event provided they are healthy if and if they've set that world record within you know recent years or that even that year 
So that's one of the big differences is there's a lot more direct transfer of how you're performing and how you're doing in track events. And it's a little bit more predictable versus the marathon. And I think that's a cautionary tale. Now, how do you prepare for it? Like, yes, you, you still do all the right things. You know, you still put in all the big buckets and you still go out and put in the hard miles, you know, not discounting that. But you also have to train the mind during it as well because that's going to be critical because how you respond to that adversity and that that those moments you can't prepare for, it's more you're training how do I respond to uncertainty rather than how do I prepare for this plan. And the athletes I found who have you know succeeded and thrived in a marathon setting, making a transition from the track, those are people who can operate very well and have a very true compass about their ability to rebound and respond in trying adverse, unpredictable moments. Yeah, no, that's uh, the mental component is much bigger because the you have what two hours, two and a half hours in your own head, and I think what happens a lot of times is like that's your your coping mechanisms are are put to the test. And as a coach or as a runner, what you really need to learn is is to know what kind of runner you are and um, where you're going to go when when the when the time is dark, right? When the things get a little hazy and hairy and all that good stuff and uncertain is where do you go? And learning how to combat that. And you know, when I look at the marathon specifically with race plans, for instance, I always look at what kind of runner do I have? You know, um, do I have someone, for instance, Neely, who's a very, very patient runner who is capable of running almost the whole thing by herself, if that means like running her kind of race and within her splits? Or with Sarah, it's the exact opposite. Like she needs to be running with or after someone. <laughs> she doesn't she doesn't do well in the kind of run your own thing and it just isn't her running personality. So not only does that like shape the race plan, but it also shapes the training a bit too. So I think taking into consideration what, what you have as an athlete and like how to mold that to best get you through that marathon distance in the, fastest time or best way you could race is is something that everyone needs to consider much more so than if we were on the track racing a 5k right personality is key in marathoning because you can be i mean you can be very successful being very ocd and wedded to your watch and running a very prescriptive pace throughout because it lends to itself over the long haul if you keep that pace if you're efficient you know you will have an opportunity to be successful because you're steady eddy you know also we've seen in boston and other major championships and major road races this erratic miles thrown in like you know in the men i remember like hendrick romala and like new york's a decade ago throws in a 420 mile like Mile 16, you know, like this crazy surgery. And you go, whoa, whoa, what? <laughs> you know, but that's because that's a strategy 
that he's prepared to execute on to try to shake people in the race. Because we know, too, with the marathon is if you can endure to mile 23, 24, and then the field starts to break up, the field starts to whittle, then you only have to worry about battling it out against the next couple of miles to finish it out, but also only a couple people. And I think, you know, the main thing I'm trying to get athletes to wrap their head around when they're transitioning from the track to the marathon is you have to be so battle-hardened or, or, you know, robust or anti-fragile in your mindset. And then you have to prepare to be so, you know, not just physically, mentally, emotionally like this. It's a complete preparedness. And I think it's a misnomer that the marathon has become such a popular event in the second running boom because that really is what spurred it. It's like everybody can run a marathon. You can run a marathon. You can run a marathon. Everyone can run a marathon. That's great. Yes, everyone can run, run, walk a marathon. Sure, that's fine. But we're talking about making this transition from hard racing on the track to hard racing over two to three hours. And that's not for everybody. And it takes a long, long time to prepare to do it well consistently. I mean, how many athletes have had that one man pop off marathon? And it's like, whoa, that's amazing. And yet they haven't been able to come back and be consistent over the long haul. And consistency is not every marathon you run is successful. Consistency is being able to get up on the horse again and again and again after failing and yet being able to put the pieces back together. Like Meb Kofletsky, great example. Like Desi, great example. They've had highs and they've had, you know, the highest highs and the lowest lows. But they yet they keep getting back on the horse and they know how to do that. And that I think too is a lot of athletes beat themselves up after a marathon you know, result doesn't go well, they drop out or they get sick because, you know, you invest six months of time, effort, energy and training. It's like this project that you're doing. And then you take this project or the small business to market and no one likes it and it fails. And you're like, oh, (laughs) you know, it's this dejection where you're like, no, 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 get back on the horse. (laughs) Keep putting in the hard miles because look at these other greats. Who have had yeah. as many failures like Bekele, Gabor Salasi, Paul Turgot. I mean, I can go down the list of the great, some of the who we consider the greatest marathoners who had crappy marathons and had the DNF dropped out or got whooped. Yeah, no, that's a great, great uh, point. And I think what happens a lot of times is athletes almost, maybe not, this isn't the right word, but they almost feel entitled to running well because they like hunkered down and put in the six months of work for this one race. Right. And it's, it's almost like, well, I, I deserve to run well because like I dedicated everything to this race and it's frustrating for them because if it doesn't go well, then it's not like a 5k where you say, okay, I'm going to rebound and run, you know, another one in two and three weeks and I'll be okay. It's like very final, there's a finality to the marathon saying like, this is it. This is all that, all that work went into this, whether it's good or bad. And I have to accept what happens and move forward and move on. And as you said, the good ones are good because they're really good at getting when, when, what am I trying to say? When the stress, they're good at turning the stress off, I guess. They're good if you look at a stress response, they're very good at coming down off of it. 
And it's the same with racing is the good ones are good at coming down off of good races and off of bad races and saying, okay, what is next? What's, what's going to happen? And like, just almost like reframing things to make sure that they got something out of it and move forward, you know, and, and that's, that's a skill that needs to be developed because in the track world, a lot of times when you're looking at middle distance or long distances, you, you, you develop this skill of almost like aggressiveness towards racing. Like, Oh, okay. I'm going to get in my time trial race. I have to, my, my time, I got to get my qualifier to the Olympics or Olympic trials or whatever you have you. So it's all aggression, aggression, aggression. And I think the marathon or generally requires a different kind of uh, personality take. And it, it requires a lot of repetition of doing the, the art, doing the distance, like running the race, like multiple times because it, I, I once, you know, talked to a couple of elite marathoners and they said, you know, it really takes about five or six marathons before you know what you're doing, <laughs> before you even get a grasp on it. And these are high level people who've been racing at a high level on the track and on the road for half marathon and shorter for 10, 15 years. Well, and here they are being like, I got to start from square one. Yeah. And I mean, think of it, think of it in terms of racing any other distance, right? When you start in high school, like how many times does it take you to just figure out the mile before you stop going like, Oh, I'm going to go out in 65 and then run five minutes for the mile. Right. You see that all the time, even with college kids, it takes them several races before we kind of are able to hone in and figure out, all right, like stop being an idiot. This is how you run these races roughly. Um, and the marathon is you have so few chances and there's so many things that kind of switch where some feel really good for a while. Some you go through some really rough patches and it's like figuring out how to deal with those. And what I found is that the really good marathoners have a, have a good idea of self-awareness. So, Desi's a great example, but they know they know on that day what their capabilities are, right? And they're able to find and ride that line for as long as they can. And I think that the inexperienced sometimes either over or underestimate their capabilities because they don't have that that self-awareness to know, like, all right, where's the line today? No, not not the line based on what my training indicates, but the line based on where can I run today? And I think that's a skill that you have to develop over several marathons to figure out. Yeah, it's a very, the marathon racing is a very sophisticated practice. It's sophisticated in its preparation and it's very sophisticated in its execution. A lot of people are like, oh, just give me the, you know, quick hits about how to prepare. You know, for me, those quick hits are you have to get comfortable with a long, steady discomfort. That's not the discomfort of just like, you know, being in a slight oxygen jet or, you know, you're having your lactate or acidosis levels creeping up. Like not that grind. Like, yeah, that's important. That's part of the craft. But it's also just discomfort with, okay, hey, I'm a little colder than I should be. I'm a little hotter than I should be. Or, oh, I have, I'm wearing two socks that are like calf socks and one sock fell, you know, or one sock kind of inched down to the ankle, you know, so things are off. Things aren't perfect. Things are a little bit 
you know, helter skelter. It's those people who are okay in that environment and not letting it be a distractor and detract from what they're doing in the moment who will be successful. You know, two, it's like you got to put in the hard miles. And the hard miles are not necessarily running fast and running these ridiculous paces. It's, you know, it's a time on the feet thing. And so regularly you need to go a little bit further than what your race dis or time is. So if you're shooting for a two and a half hour marathon, your long runs, you should have a couple that are like three hours, you know, because you want to know you can, maybe you don't cover 26 miles in that three hours, maybe you cover 25, 24, but you know you can run for that time. Because it's also too, we think a lot about, and you know I can run for miles. And my favorite is, you know, the classic, I did 18 miles at marathon pace. I'm ready to go. It's like, that is the worst workout ever (laughs) from a hubristic standpoint, because that doesn't mean anything. I I mean, if you've been a college runner, you can do 18 miles because that's basically everyone's long run for four years, the division one level. Everyone's running two hours. Everyone's running 18 miles. So saying I could do it out marathon pace, I'm ready to go. Yeah, maybe it is, but, Nine times out of ten, it doesn't mean anything. It, it, it's it's an incomplete measure. And so I encourage people to think a little bit more deeply, turn the lights on, and think what are what really are the obstacles here? And so, you know, time on the feet, you know, negotiating the fatigue and the cumulative fatigue as it sets in. And while it's not an easy pill to swallow for a lot of people, the reality is our understanding and our competitiveness with the marathon is elevating. It's not what it was in the 90s. Sure is not what it was in the 80s. And even in the early 2000s when you could just roll, a lot of these guys and gals could roll off the track and basically do a, long, a hard long run as a marathon and get a qualifying mark to something because it was in its infancy in our understanding. Now the speed of play at the elite level and even like the amateur level to qualify the Olympic trials, the bar is raised and it's raised a lot higher than it was. And you have to respect the difficulty that that takes. And so it's okay to train for six months and fail miserably two or three times. That's fine. I mean, I know people, you know, that's their career, that's their job. And they will train two years and just it never connects. And then finally it connects. But now that does that mean they know how to make it connect every time down the road? No, because there's, I don't believe, much correlation between having a fast debut marathon or a successful one or having an unsuccessful debut marathon and then what your result will be in the next one. Because we, we, we get all excited all the time. Like, oh. This person, they ran a crazy fast debut. They're the next. They're going to be. Well, ask Ryan Hall how that, you know, look at his career trajectory. I mean, I think it's very successful. He ran very fast. He made Olympic teams. You know, he was a player. He put himself in the mix and he pushed himself to be one of the best, you know, and regardless of what you, you know, what your opinion is of his career or not, he gave it everything he had. And that to me is something to champion and something to be excited about versus, you know, look at other athletes who come off an Olympic year and say, oh, man, you know, oh, I just made an Olympic team. Okay, I'm going to train for a fall marathon. And there was all this hype and this, oh, they're going to debut. It's going to be great. They just, they had a great track season. Oh, and then the debut is just, you know, something not, you know, not to remember. <laughs> I mean, it happens very frequently. It's not because the intelligent coach and the capable athlete didn't train well and train appropriately it's just that's how difficult the darn thing is and i think that goes to maybe the whole point of this podcast is um 
You need some humility when you approach the marathon, right? And it's easy to say it. It's easy to like say, oh, I'm humble. Like the marathon's this, this, and this. But no, you, you really do. Because I think a lot of times we, as coaches and as athletes, we make that mistake. And that's why you see some of those debuts coming off track training is sometimes people nail it. But sometimes, you know, people fold and have a horrible debut. And I think it's it's a common thing to say, respect the distance, but you really, truly need to. And more than that, you really need to understand that if the first one doesn't go well, like you said, it's not the end of the world, right? How many times did we see, you know, athletes like Paul Tergott or whoever, Gilbert Selassie maybe even, um, not reach this epic stardom in their debut marathon that they were all supposed to do based on their incredible track careers. It happens. And if it happens to the best of the best, then it can happen to any Joe Schmo off the street. And I think what you have to do as a coach or as an athlete is to try and give yourself the best chance to um, succeed in a way that isn't like, oh, I'm going to run, you know, if I'm a woman, I'm going to debut in 229. Like, that's not what it's about. You need to take the long view and say, okay, like, we're going to get one in. We're going to do the best we can. We're going to learn how to run this thing and, you know, use this as building blocks towards mastering this distance. And I think that that needs to be taken into consideration. And I think part of that, too, is taking into consideration what marathon you run. Because, again, some challenge different things. If we run Boston, you better get good at running downhill. If you run New York, you better be really, really strong to be able to run through the hills in the last couple miles because they hit you really hard. Um, if you're running a fast marathon, fast flat course, that changes the dynamics too. Same with one that could be potentially hot, humid, whatever have you. But the dynamics and the limiting factors change a lot. And I think as a coach, you you want to make sure that you're setting yourself, your athlete up for getting what you want out of the marathon versus like having this horrible experience, which I think sometimes happens. And then the good ones bounce back, like we said, but sometimes what you see is almost like a PTSD with it, right? And it's like, oh, I, and it gets like mental in their head. Now, I don't know if this happened or not, but look at the world record holder in the half marathon, the men's half marathon, Tedesi, right? He's run, I don't know, what's the men's half record? 58 something? Um, He's pretty fast. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, he's killed it. But his fastest marathon is like 212 maybe, right? Which is not comparable at all. And he's taken, you know, four or five tries, I think, now. But I think that that that's what we have to remember is, like, you got to do the best you can to set yourself up and then set yourself up mentally so that you don't have this, like, you know, lingering scar that, that can affect you for a while. And this is nothing new. I mean, look at Boston Billy, you know, yeah. Bill Rogers. He had many, many a bad marathon in his prime. You know, when he was the king of the marathon. And, but that's the thing. I think what lends to 
when an athlete really is ready to transition from track racing, cross country racing to marathon racing, or even road racing to marathon racing, is do they love putting in the miles? Because that's one of the big things. You have to be so in love with the process. You're going to put so many, you know, footsteps in front of the other to get ready for the marathon. That if you do not have this just inherent love about being there on the pavement, pounding away, you know, the morning run, the evening run, the doubles, you know, if that doesn't fill you with joy, then, and if you're only doing it because you're going to get a big appearance fee or there's big prize money, or you think, this is always my favorite, oh, it's an easier team to make is a marathon team. It's easy. It's like, oh, nothing's easy about any team at any level in the United States in track and field and road racing. So, because again, it's less certain, yes, but it, as you saw, like last year at the Olympic trials, I mean, the people who were in position to make that team and who made the team were either very capable athletes who have been there before, athletes who have trained very hard for a long time at a very high level and people who had a long, long, long line lineage of credentials proceeding from high school, almost all the way up through college into post-collegiate world. So, you know, because I think there's, in my opinion, a, a lot of people think it's easy to train for the marathon. It's just more, like we said before, it's more miles. You do two workouts a week and you make, and you make them longer and you do a long run. And you just make the long run longer. And then you just make your recovery runs longer as well. So you get more mileage and you get more mileage and then you're ready to run the marathon. And I wish it was that simple because if it was, man, everyone would be crushing. <laughs> but that's but that's the thing that, you know, that's the great lie that the amateurs or the, you know, the hobby joggers or the recreational coaches and athletes kind of glossed over or, you know, are telling themselves because they're not really committing to like how hard and how difficult this thing is to do it well. And anytime you're talking about doing something well, it's a difficult proposition and venture. And I think that's where individuality plays a huge, uh, huge factor in, in marathon training. And I think it, even more so than any of the shorter stuff, because like you need to learn how, and you need to be responsive to, how long it takes athletes to come off of different types of workouts and adapt to them. Because I think that that varies very, very greatly. You know, some can do long, long marathon pace work or long tempo work and come back fine and be good and keep hammering along. Well, some it might take them uh, three or four days to just kind of bounce back off of it. And I think one of the key lessons, takeaways I've gotten is you got to get out of this like typical week cycle that you're in, in the track world, right? Two days or two hard workouts, as you said, in the long run, like sometimes you have to, maybe it's just expand that to eight day cycle or nine or 10 day cycle or something to that degree, but giving yourself space to get things in and bounce around to different stimuli is, is paramount. You know, I found it, with, uh, for instance, one of my athletes, Sarah Crouch, who was top 10 at Chicago, um, she takes about three relatively easy days in between any kind of quality work she does. And that's just what has happened in the marathon training that she does. It's how she best responds while getting in the mileage that she needs to and all that stuff. So her, her planning schedule 
isn't on any kind of cycle whatsoever. There's not like a Sunday long run or a Saturday long run or a Monday long run. The the long run just kind of comes when it comes. And I think getting out of that, that set standard cycle is something that you need to do as a marathon coach. Yes, good marathon coaching is an N of one. It's highly individualized and tailored. And you see that all the time. Like, you know, Desi... Her training is an NO1 in the Hansons group, Bob Larson, NO1 with Kafletsky. Um, you know, even when Kara and Shalane trade together under Jerry and even Amy Hastings um, or Amy Craig now training with Schumacher, there it's still an NO1 for each one of those women. And I mean, that is the reality is there's sure a template that you can go off of, but you have to know yourself as a person and as an athlete and your coach has to know you really well. And, the other thing you know I want to interject is, too, you have a lot of worry and a lot of insecurity about racing the marathon because it's this big opaque unknown. But I remember talking to Jerry Schumacher after um, the Olympic trials, and he was like, "Well, I was like, were you worried?" He goes, "Oh no, because I, you know, he what he calls fear of God workouts. So he had these fear of God workouts, which were much more difficult asks." to do that his the women he was training for the marathon had to accomplish before the marathon trials and once they passed that test they knew okay this is going to be much more difficult this workout or these series of workouts than anything i'm going to meet come race day no matter what and so then they went in with this confidence that they could accomplish and they could achieve rather than a lot of times we look to training as a reassurance in terms of Every workout, you're just trying to reassure yourself that you can do it, that you can reach your goal. I'm like, okay, this workout's a little better. It's a little faster. It felt a little easier. My perception was, you know, not quite as it was not quite as difficult. Okay, okay, I'm progressing. Okay, good, good. I'm reassuring because your confidence really is not there. Versus being like, hey, in a marathon, you don't get a lot of time. You don't get a lot of, you know, rust buster marathons before your big one. <laughs> I mean, it's the you just can't do it. So you have to create these workout situations where you're going to do something whether it's within one day or back-to-back days or you know two days and three days two sessions and three days whatever where it's going to be a much more difficult ask and you do that a couple times so that you're you play and you dance with the tension you know you dance with that fear about the unknown that's going to be confronted with you and so then when you meet it on race day you're like oh it's not as bad as I had thought. It's not as bad as that workout. And then that gives you that positive emotion. So the mental component is so great in a marathon, especially as you get more cognitively fatigued, as everything in your body gets fatigued. You know, your brain is not going to be able to see it's clear. And I think the, the good athletes, the ones that we think are always on their games, they love that moment when the mind gets cloudy because that's an opportunity for them to clear the fog that their body is saying, hey, please stop, slow down by all means. And this, but they clear their mind and it truly is clearing the mind in their, in the way they talk about it. And they just focus on manageable chunks very clearly and concisely. And then all of a sudden it looks to the outside observer. They're walking away or sprinting away from the pack or their composition, but they're just, they're so clear about the next 10 steps and they just make that affirmation 10 steps, then another 10 steps. Or light post, light post to light post, or street to street. But because that clarity is there, it is a moment of high tox, toxicity. 
they're able to accomplish it and look and make, and make it look effortless. I mean, as author of this upcoming performance book, Steve, what you know, <laughs> and being an expert now on this because so, you've written this totem of this book, how does that resonate, or is that contrary to what you've experienced in your and Brad's research? I, I, I love the plug there, and by the way, we <laughs> do cover this topic. Uh, no, it, you know it's funny you were you were uh, sitting there talking about it, and. Um, and it resonates completely. And, and actually, our good friend, uh, Phoebe Wright, kind of summed it up. And this has already always stuck with me. Is she calls it zooming in. Like you zoom so far in where it's like, okay, mm, yeah, get to the next light post. And, you know, I had a, I've talked about him before, but I, I had a conversation to sit down with a uh, drummer friend who is a drummer for probably the biggest artist in the world. And when, when he's struggling up there, he, he's like, all right, like when I'm struggling and I'm like grinding through it and I'm like really pressing instead of being in this like flow state type deal that we all wish and imagine, he just breaks it down. And he's like, I literally go like one action at the time. Like, what is my action? Oh, hit this. Okay. What is my next action? This I'm not thinking, you know, five lines, five seconds, 10 seconds ahead, I am literally like, what is my next step? And I just do that. He was telling me, I, he just does that until he gets back to where he can kind of take the pressure off a little bit and get back into that rhythm of it where now, now he's kind of has that flexibility ability to, to do that. And I think all great performers, and that's one of the things we learned from this book is all great performers do that. And you have to have that capacity that capability during the rough spots to to zoom all the way in and focus on okay what do i have to do in this second in this moment right now to move ahead and i think what you see with with people who aren't quite seasoned or haven't developed that skill yet is instead of being able to break it down to that what happens is they have this like panic freak out moment and they sit there and they say okay like oh my god I'm at mile 23 and I have three more miles and it feels like I can't take another step. So I'm just going to, you know, give in, slow down and crater instead of breaking it down to this next, you know, as simple as it can be. And you see the same thing in the mile splits where people are saying, Oh, I need to run 540 mile. And what happens if I run a 550 mile? Well, the, the seasoned veteran thinks like, okay, I'm all right. Like, let's just try and keep it rolling, like focus on the next 400 meters and maybe pressing it down a little bit. Well, the unseasoned vet kind of freaks out and either tries to make a big move to catch up, right? To get rid of mm -hmm. that money he has extracted and makes a mistake. Or he goes into this like catastrophizing where he just lets his mind run rampant and starts ruminating. And that 550 mile now turns into 630 next mile when he could have probably kept it 550 to six minutes and, you know, salvaged it until he felt better. And I think what happens with athletes or with everybody is when they're going through the rough patch, they imagine that it's going to happen for the rest of the race. And that freaks them out. And they don't have this experience, this understanding to say, in this moment, I am hurting or I am suffering or it, it is becoming more difficult. What is my coping strategy to make my way through this for as long as I need to 
because I might come out of this either in the next minute or maybe five minutes down the line, but I can come out of this and knowing that it's not lasting through the rest of the race. And that preparation is 50-50, just as important as putting in the miles and the hard miles. Because if you're just mindlessly listening to your jock jams, putting in the miles (laughs) and thinking, oh, I'm going to be ready to go, but yet you you don't have those kind of come to Jesus moments in workouts, long runs, you know, where you're holding yourself accountable, where you're like dancing again with that tension, with that fear, then you're doing yourself a disservice by all the time and energy you're investing in this training and this preparation of the physical without wedding and practicing and enhancing the mental. And that to me is one of the key transition because you can get away with just physical 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 preparation on the track and even shorter road races because the this the duration of the suffering and discomfort and severity of it is not as long but you can't hide in the marathon and you can't hide emotionally or mentally in the marathon and you know if you don't do that to work before that marathon but you do the per- perfect physical work it will get exposed guaranteed and so that's what makes transitioning and training for the marathon from the track so tricky even for the most skilled and competent athlete and successful athlete around the oval yeah and you have to and that's what makes marathon training is you have to embrace like the the difficulties and uncertainty and just the grind of it all if you do that like you you don't wait for the perfect day to hit your workout right you don't You don't run it on the perfect flat course to get it done. You have to put yourself in situations where, you know, it kind of sucks. And you're going to go through this mental, you know, downtime roadblock where you got to figure your way out of it. That's why you also shouldn't always have, you know, some training partner pacing you the whole time or something like that. Like you've got to get through those mentally difficult times and use those as, as almost uh, rehearsal points for where you're going to go in the race. Because I think the mistake a lot of people make is that they see the physical training and getting physically ready, but training in practice is also mental conditioning. And where you go in practice is where you're going to go in the race. So if you, like you said wear your iPod or whatever, turn on your music or like rely on someone else pacing you and you just latching on and going for a ride. You're training yourself mentally in an entirely different way than what will likely happen, which is at some point in the marathon, you're going to be in no man's land and hammering away with, you know, someone a hundred meters up on you and someone a hundred meters down on you. And you just trying to figure it out. And I think a lot of times that athletes don't have those points when it's just them alone in their head in practice, and that that can make a difference. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of things even I've gone over today where it shows you it's just marathon training is not an extension. It's a whole other ball of wax, or I should say, effective comprehensive intelligent marathon training is not an extension of track training and while it's seductive to want to think that and you know implement that 
the reality is you're just doing yourself a disservice and you're legitimately going through the motions <laughs> if you do that. <laughs> you know, and it's like if you're gonna give a chunk of your life, six months, a year, however long, over to this preparation, to me, you wanna make sure you do it well. And to me, you know, I think it's important to sit down and be very deliberate and consider those elements and the uh, influence they have. The, there's enough tips and tricks out there for those seeking about food management and, you know, things of, regarding, okay, how many calories to take in, you know, drinking early and often, drinking every five kilometers, you know, all those types of things, sure. Like, those are good best practices to know. But, again, they will be ineffective if these foundational elements apart from the physical preparation, the mental and emotional and responsiveness training is not part of your wheelhouse or your tool chest in getting prepared. Exactly. I couldn't have summed it up any better. You're getting good at this, John. But, you know... With practice, right? This is deliberate practice. There we go. And I think, you know, I, I know a lot of people sometimes want bunches of training details and stuff like that maybe we'll have a podcast on marathon nuts and bolts training one day um once we run out of topics but i but i think the message when when we considered okay someone wants us to tell talk about the marathon is we're not we're not gurus on training for any any one distance right i mean we're just kind of coaches and what what really matters to me is, and John, is getting the message across that it doesn't always get conveyed. And that's why we started this podcast, is to get that message across. And the training details, a lot of, I mean, I've talked about them, John's talked about them. There's coaches who are way smarter than us who have gone over the marathon. But it's it's really this in and outs of the, psych, the psychology, the uncertainty um, the difficulty of it all that that doesn't really get addressed that much. So hopefully our uh, little spiel on that kind of starts that conversation and gets used to start asking, where are you training mentally and psychologically as well as physically? And are you setting yourself up for success for the marathon in that direction? Because it's going to have just about as big of an impact as if you've been doing you know, all the long runs, all the training, all the marathon specific work. And that is the difficult work is it's not the, the natural, you know, fluidity and clarity and joy of putting one foot in front of the other, but that difficult work that has a payoff. And that's what makes it a shallow superficial practice to a practice with more depth and dimension that and it, and if that is the case, it's a strengthened practice that will serve you well in those moments of doubt, in those moments of uncertainty. You know, and I always tell people you can be very superficial and react to the moment. And the idea, right, is when you react to something that's bad, as if you're in the doctor's office, or if your reaction to the drug, that means something bad happened. But if you respond well, if you respond to this and responding to what's in front of you, that's a good thing. And so you want to shift that mindset to a responsive mindset. How do I create a solution? Not let me react and judge and freak out and put all some negative emotion and energy into it. And that's what catches a lot of people off guard. But it's difficult work. But I think, you know, using running and marathon training as a conduit and running and 
track training and, you know, how Steve and I, our preferred message of coaching is it's worth showing up, not hiding and doing that difficult work because you're going to get a lot out of it. And I've seen it so many times with so many people. I can, I can preach it because I've, I've watched it unfold again and again and again, and it's worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it. Preach on. <laughs> well, what, once again, uh, thanks everyone for listening. We appreciate all the feedback. Um, you can continue to hit us up on social, on Twitter. Um, check out my blog at Science of Running where these things are posted. It'll have uh, John and myself's Twitter handles in case you didn't know what those were. But um, appreciate everybody listening. And starting the plugs for Steve's book, you know, again, he's not going to plug it all that much himself right now. But I can tell you I've read it and it is valuable, vulnerable work. He and his um, co-author Brad put a lot of time and energy into it. And, you know, if all the stuff we've been talking about for the last two years has piqued your interest, it is worth the purchase. And I don't put that lightly because I'm not here to sell books. (laughs) But again, you know, bringing a book to market is a difficult task. It's like, you know, giving giving birth to and raising a child. So check it out when it comes out because I think you'll learn about 10 to 14 things. And if you don't, Shoot me an email or hit me up on Twitter and I'll reimburse you for it. The book. Oh, look at that. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. You're Yeah, you're welcome, buddy. You're good at this stuff. Um, awesome. Well, thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll we'll be back on the regular. Thanks to John, not myself. Hey, because we're here to give the people what they want. That is Thank great. you. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. <laughs>